0: Thanks for checking out this week's sermon from Bonavista Baptist Church. We invite, encourage, and equip you to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We're just about at the end of this sermon series, Seeing Jesus, while we explore the parables that are very unique to Luke's gospel. And we've just got a few more to go this week and next week. Uh, The parable today uh, stands out among the other parables. It's a little bit different, and it's different for a number of reasons. It's different because there's very little context to it. It doesn't start with a question, or it doesn't start with a conflict. It just kind of starts. So it's hard for us to place exactly what's going on uh, until we get a little deeper into the parable. There's also no setup for it. Uh, Luke doesn't say, Jesus told a parable about... And goes into it. So because it doesn't have the word parable, some people have thought, well, maybe Jesus is telling an actual story about an actual man that died and went to heaven. But I'm not so sure that's the case. I think it still is a parable. A lot of the language, a lot of the imagery, the structure uh, indicates that this is a parable of Jesus. In other words, it's a story he tells to elevate a greater truth, to lead us into something that's a little bit deeper that would be hard for us to comprehend. But instead of taking seed and soil and farmers and land, he takes concepts that would have been very familiar to the Jewish mind. Uh, Abraham's side as being the ultimate goal of where you'd want to be in the next life. So all those things are very much parabolic. They're part of the parable. But here's the most interesting thing. I want you to hold on to this, because this is one of the keys to unlocking Uh, the power of this parable. One character is named in this parable, completely unique. None of the other parables have a named character like this. One character is named, and his name is Lazarus. Now, not necessarily the Lazarus that died and was raised from the dead, but Lazarus, and the name Lazarus means God is my help. Lazarus is the poor man in the parable. And that's very important because ordinarily, poverty is anonymous, while wealth is acknowledged. But in this parable, there's a reversal, and that's the key to the parable. It's so interesting to me, though, that the church over the years has actually tried to name the other character in the parable. Uh, at one point, they came up with a name, Dives, which is from the Latin, which means rich or wealthy. Another name that gave him was Nuis, uh, which I think means Nineveh. Another name that gave him is Phineas. Phineas and Ferb, I don't know where that came from, but Phineas is another name that they gave to this rich man. And there's, there's a, a, a compulsion an impulse in the church, for some reason, to give the rich guy a name. But Jesus doesn't do that, and I think it's very intentional. And we need to let that rest and let the one name stand out Jesus names the poor man, and he gives him the name Lazarus. So keep that in mind as we go forward. Well, as we read the parable, I think we realize that Jesus is directing this parable again toward the Pharisees. Uh, These are the Pharisees, Jesus said, were lovers of money and did not care for the poor. He said that in the past. These are the Pharisees that were constantly making fun of Jesus, and constantly looking for ways to trap him. So I think Jesus is very much directing this parable to the Pharisees, and might even be directing this parable to the current high priest. And that gets a little bit dangerous for Jesus as he pushes into that area. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is coming to the end of the journey narrative, and now he begins uh, to go on to the next stage, but he also ends his confrontation with the Pharisees, With these parables. So Jesus says in verse 15 of the the chapter, you are the ones who make yourselves look right in men's sight, but God knows your heart. And that's really the emphasis of the parable. Everything looks good on the outside, just like the rich man, but his heart was far from God. And that's what Jesus wants to get at. So the parable is great. It has all the, the regular themes of the parables of Jesus. Themes of death and resurrection, of lost and found, uh, themes of the greatest and the least. But the big theme in this parable is the contrast between the rich and the poor. This is a contrast parable. It's also a story of great reversal. That's the tools of telling, of storytelling that Jesus is using. So we need to spend a little bit of time getting to know the nameless rich guy and the named poor man, Lazarus. Uh, let's look at the rich man first. Three things, at least, we know about this guy. And this might, we might have a little fun with this, but I think it's going to be really important to set this up in order to get the extreme contrast that's going on. First thing we know about this guy is that he feasted sumptuously. That's what it says in the older translations. NIV kind of talks about he, he had a wealthy life or he had a good life. But the word that's used there is a real reference to food and feasting. It's a a reference to gourmet feasting on exotic and costly dishes. And he did it every day. He didn't just go out once a week to the keg. Every single day he saddled up to the giant uh, food bar and ate his fill. The idea here is that he was excessively rich. I mean, there's different kinds of rich. This guy was filthy, stinking rich. He was excessively rich, and he had an excess and abundance of food. That's an important contrast. Well, the second thing that the story tells us is that this guy liked to dress in purple. And that might not ring a bell with many of us. I think the last time I wore purple was in the 80s, and it was spandex biking shorts. So that's not the image I want you to take away with today. Um, But this rich guy loved him some purple. Purple was important because it was kind of a royal color, but it was also a color of wealth. And that's partly because of how the purple dye was made. There wasn't a synthetic dye that they could get their hands on. And so the way that they made this purple dye was awful. They would take these sea snails and they would boil them in big giant vats and it would be disgusting and smelly and stenchy. And they would be able to extract something like a purple dye ...from these snails. Well, it would take thousands of snails... ...just to put a liner of purple around your clothes. But the image we have in the story... ...is that this guy was dripping in purple. Thousands and tens of thousands of snails in purple. It was excessive again. It was very excessive. Well, here's the last thing that we're told about this guy. Not only that he feasted sumptuously and he dressed in purple... But here's my favorite part. He had some fine linen. And whenever we read of linen in the New Testament, that's actually the undergarment. So this guy not only dressed fancy on the outside, but he had some fancy underwear. I mean, it's right down. The whole thing is just an excessive stereotype of someone who is, is terribly rich and loves to flaunt it. That's what this guy was all about. But there might be something... Uh, uh, Even more uh, undermining in, in this parable that Jesus is trying to point out, he might be actually subtly attacking the high priest a little bit. Because the high priest also had purple garments. In fact, the high priest had purple garments that had the color blue. And the color blue was meant to show obedience to God. That's what it symbolized. This guy in the story only has purple, no blue, no obedience to God. That might be intentional. But where we really see that Jesus might be talking about the high priest is later in the story when the rich man goes to the afterlife and he calls out, send someone to my five brothers. Well, guess what? The high priest at the time of Jesus had five brothers. And so Jesus might be taking a bit of a dig that would have been obvious, I think, to the hearers at the time. So that's the rich guy. Just keep that in mind, those images, and just that excessive wealth that he loved to flaunt. Let's look at the poor man. Let's look at Lazarus, who is named in the story. We, we learn a number of things about his poverty, at least three things. First of all, he was a beggar. He, he had to beg for his food. He had to beg for money. I, I don't know if you've ever had to um, have the occasion to go and ask someone for financial help. That can be so humiliating. It can be actually so shameful. Whenever people come to me and ask for some financial assistance, I always admire their courage to do that because it is the hardest thing to do. And especially for this man to have to beg day in, day out. It's dehumanizing, but it also just erodes his sense of who he is as a man. So he's shameful. It's not just begging for money. He's not just getting by by asking money for booze. This is a shameful thing for him. And so he is a beggar. But then it also says he's full of sores. So he's not only a beggar, he's also sick. He's an untouchable, maybe not to the point of being excluded from the city, but he is somewhat of an untouchable because he's full of sores. What an awful image. I think of Job when he was full of sores, and he was so itchy that he just wanted to scrape them off. That's the kind of awful picture that we have of this man. No one would want to go near. Everyone would leave him alone because he had these stinking sores all over him. But it gets worse. (laughs) The only people that will come near are not people at all. It's actually the dogs. And the dogs come to lick his sores. This This is the last blow. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back for this man. I know some people have said, well, the dogs might be a sign of, of kindness, coming to lick his wounds, to be healed. That's a wives' tale. Don't not let your dog lick your wounds. It will not heal. It will get worse. And in fact, in the Jewish understanding, the dogs were terribly unclean animals. Uh, they called the Gentiles dogs. So you can see the association here is negative. Even the dogs came and licked his wounds. And so this man is not only down and out, uh, he's full of shame, he's excluded, he's an outsider, he's exactly the kind of person that Luke and Jesus wants us to pay attention to. And that's why Jesus gives him a name, Lazarus, God is my help. Well, from outward appearance, the rich man is obviously blessed. I mean, isn't he? We would say that of him today, we'd say, wow you've got a lot of blessings in your life. And the poor man, well, he's obviously cursed. He must have made some bad decisions or there must be some kind of sin in his life or something in his past that caused him to be this way. That's how the audience, I think, would have perceived it. And maybe that's how we would perceive people like that today. Those who are wealthy and seem to have it all together, they're blessed. Those who are not and are on the street or walking up and down the traffic lights looking for some money, must be cursed, or have done something wrong. So we're not too far off from the mark of the audience that Jesus was talking to. Well, both men die. That's the great equalizer, isn't it? Death. And both men die, and surprise, says Jesus, (laughs) the great reversal happens, and the poor man goes to Abraham's side, and the rich man goes to Hades. It's interesting, though, that even in Hades, The rich man still thinks he can boss the poor man around. Hey, send Lazarus to bring some water over to me and cool my tongue. He hasn't learned his lesson at all. He still thinks he's the winner. He still thinks he's in charge. And that's part of what we see in the story. But the fortunes are very much reversed. Now, we have to be careful here. This isn't a theology of how to get into heaven by being incredibly poor. That's not what this is about. In fact, the whole story isn't really to tell us too much about heaven and hell. There's a different point in the story, and that's what Jesus wants us to pay attention to. Part of the point of the story is this, to wake up the Pharisees, to take them and shake them, to make them pay attention to their privilege, to their wealth, to the opportunity that they have, to their obligation under God's law to the poor among them. Wake up, Pharisees pay attention, take action. That's what this parable is meant to fire them up to. Robert Farrar Capon, um, a commentator, he says this, If the world could have been saved by successful living, it would have been tidied up long ago. The Pharisees loved money and were quite successful, and yet the problems existed. He goes on to say, It is not success of any kind that saves. Not even success in keeping the law. And that's part of the point that Jesus wanted the Pharisees to get. So, what was the sin of the rich man? What did he do wrong? I mean, he never ordered Lazarus to be removed from his gate. He had no objections, I guess, to letting some of the bread from his table go to Lazarus from time to time. He didn't kick him while he was walking by. He wasn't deliberately cruel to Lazarus. The sin of the rich man was that he never even noticed Lazarus. He had accepted Lazarus simply as part of the landscape and thought it was perfectly natural and inevitable that Lazarus should lie in pain and hunger while he enjoyed luxury. Lazarus, for him, was just another part of the landscape, and that's where he went wrong. The rich man is really a picture of entitled privilege that often comes with wealth and power. And that was the trap that the Pharisees were falling into. And that's this very same trap that you and I can fall into today. Because the reality is, and let's face it, we are privileged. We are privileged because of our general wealth, because of our access to resources, because of our social programs, because we live in Canada, because of our freedoms that we have, we could make a list of the things uh, that make us somewhat privileged. And we might be tempted to think, well, we deserve this. We've earned this. This is our right, and it must be protected. And sometimes when you see those that are less privileged, that don't have access to those kind of things, sometimes trapped in poverty of all kinds, we might be tempted to think, well, they brought this on themselves. Look at the foolish decisions they made. And so they simply blend into part of the fabric of the landscape around us, and we don't pay attention, partly because we are in our own world and want to protect it. But Jesus says, wake up. Pay attention to the suffering and the shame and the pain and the plight of the poor who are right in front of you, right on your own doorstep. I think sometimes it's easy for us to get involved in international missions. And I'm not against international missions. I was part of Canadian Baptist Ministries for a number of years, and I've always supported and engaged in international missions. But there is a certain privilege in being able to do that, to be able to lay out $4,000 to go to Rwanda for two weeks and help out with a kid's camp. Uh, There's a certain privilege in being able to do that. Uh, But sometimes it's harder to face the issues right on our own doorstep, to pay attention to the people around us that are in need, to the poor in our own city, to those who are marginalized and disenfranchised right in our own town. That's what I think Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Pay attention to the people right in front of you. So here's the challenge for us today. Who's on your doorstep? Who is God placed in your path? And as a church, who's on our doorstep? Uh, How is God calling us to pay attention to the needs of people right around us? I'm so grateful that as a congregation, we're very much involved in the mustard seed downtown and supporting the crisis uh, care center, pregnancy care center, or, or supporting Teen Challenge, or we have a great benevolent team that supports people that are in financial need right in our own congregation. I'm grateful for that. But I think more can be done. I think as we move forward, we constantly have to be asking the question, who's on our doorstep? Let's pay attention to the people and the needs that are presented to us by God right in our own areas. Well, why was Jesus so hard on the Pharisees? I mean, this whole journey that we've gone through with the parables, again and again, he's taking blows of the Pharisees. Did he hate them? Did he disdain them? Was he jealous of them? I don't think so. I think he saw the incredible potential that the Pharisees had to do good. They had wonderful knowledge of the scriptures. They they had good ability because of their financial status. They had power and influence in the community. And Jesus wanted them to use that for good and not for evil. I think the same message comes to us again today. There's so much potential for us to do good. And Jesus says, pay attention, understand where you've been placed and the gifts that you have been given. But the Pharisees, they needed correction. They needed perhaps a little bit of shock and awe, a little bit of a a fire under their seat to get things moving. And I think that's why Jesus told this parable. He kind of dangled them over the fires a little bit in order to motivate them to wake up and pay attention. Sometimes, perhaps, we need that as well.